Tonight I like <coughs> to speak <coughs> in a colorful way. <coughs> so a little bit exotic. I like to speak about sacrifice. So it is a very very old religious practice to sacrifice. So we can see, uh, studying from the ancient culture, that very, very long ago, then <coughs> in the tribes, the first sacrifice was that of the chief of the tribes. So the tribe would gather sometimes and just sacrifice their chief. So after sometimes those chiefs may have thought that was not such a good practice because it was very costly for them then, well, they decided maybe it's better to sacrifice something very dear, but maybe let, let much less close to the one who was taking the decision. So yeah, some adolescent of the tribe were offered, and there is a a movie about, uh, I think, in New Guinea, where one can see that. It's very dramatic, actually. The tribe, it is gather, gather there, and then they will dance for three, three days and three nights. And then they have built a small house, wooden house, and some adolescent have been chosen. There's one young girl and seven young men. So all the men will go and lie down with this young woman, to have sexual contact with her, and the last one, the last young man and this uh, young woman, then at this time they will uh, take away some wood and all the house will collapse on them. Then, that's already quite dramatic, but uh, it can be even more, you know. Then they were um, cooked and they were eaten by the member of the tribe. So everybody very, very small part. And I think if it was filmed, so it is not so long ago that they did report that. So imagine how dramatic it was. In the in Central America, in the Mayan tradition, so it was also the tradition to offer to sacrifice men. You know, they they had a very strange game with a very huge. Um, ball made, uh, made out of rubber and there was some kind of hole in the, in the wall and they would need to throw this ball through that hole and just maybe with the uh, help of the uh, shoulders or, or the hip they could not touch with feet or with head or with hand and the team who was losing the chief of this team was also sacrificed so you see, a very dramatic game at this time. Or during wars, then some prisoner would be made, and the most glorious of the warrior who had been captured will be sacrificed. And sometimes they will let him free for one year. They will put, a, give him beautiful clothes and very good food, and for one year he will just be let free and uh, be like a king or like a god. And after one year, 
it will be sacrificed. And for this, of course, when we hear that now, we see how, you know, it's dramatic tradition, imagine, and, uh, and uh, even this stupid warrior, he was happy to be sacrificed. For him, it was a great honor. It was his best way of dying. For him, it means something spiritually. It was a way that then he would be uh, among the gods. So, very weird tradition. So, when the Spanish, they uh, got to Central America, actually, and they saw that what the Mayans were doing, then they took some priests, Mayan priests, and they burned seven Mayan priests. Those people were sacrificing people, you see. So, they were burned. Well, that seems quite strange, those traditions, but in the Christian world, we have something not so different. I was reading the life of a very recent saint, Charles de Foucault, who lived in the desert. And first he was in Palestine. And there the Turkish were attacking and they were killing some Christian people. And so he was crying, God, every day, may I be killed by the Turkish people for your own sake. So he wanted the same. He wanted to be killed for the sake of God. So he could have withdrawn somewhere where he will be in safety. But he was praying every day that he would be killed by the Turkish people. So also a beautiful way of dying from his point of view. Not so much different from the Mayan warrior who were sacrificed for some spiritual aim. And I don't know if you remember, maybe it was last year, that some Christian monk had been killed in Algeria. And they knew also that their life was in danger, but they chose to stay there. Also in the same sense, to sacrifice their life for the sake of God. So not so, not so different. So afterwards, then the, when the tradition um, went on, so it was uh, changed, then the people will not offer anymore even people of their own tribes. Then they will offer animals, or they would offer food, or they would offer different objects. But what was sacrificed and offered was always something useful. It just would not make sense, of course, to sacrifice something which is useless. Where is the sacrifice if you are offering something which is useless? So always something useful. Very close, we can see to start with, that was the closest to the tribe. The chief was certainly the closest to the tribe. Then the youth of the tribe were also very close, and slowly it changed something a little bit farther, like animals, domestic animals. Not wild animals were offered. So that looked very strange, and when the sociologists, they explained that, then they find good reason, but of course always economical reason. So the people were doing that for the welfare of the tribe so that all the uh, um, crops will come uh, beautifully and there will be no, not too much rain. And so all they find many practical reasons to justify that or explain that. That the only way of reading some action of some tribe or some people, it is because it has some practical benefit. It is like if in the world 
people have never been interested by something deeper than just something practical. So, trying to explain the meaning of that, we are quite shocked that it will just be reduced to some kind of efficiency. And like, certainly, it was obvious to them that it did not work so well. You know, sacrificing something was not really so efficient that, you know, there will be not too much rain and not too much sun and so on. So they may have a deeper reason for that, and not just a kind of economical reason. So, if they were not interested so much in just producing more food and so on, maybe they had a deeper search in their sacrificing. Maybe it was a sense of unity, of oneness that they were looking for, much deeper. So one can see that in the sacrificing of something which is useful, like uh, domestic animals or even food which is offered, there is something, if we look at maybe how humankind became so skillful in producing tools and being efficient. First, by producing very simple tools which uh, allow them to maybe secure some kind of food. So when one is producing a tool, that's something very peculiar is arising there. Because the tool is something which does not, or is something which does need to exist on time. I mean, in time, does not exist for itself. Is done at a time when is not used for itself for some for, for some future result. So when humankind started to be intelligent and developing that, it also start to live in time and develop time. And the tool is something completely inauthentic which never stands for itself. A stone stands for a stone, a tree for a tree, a river for a river, but a tool does not stand for itself. And therefore, with respect to our own beingness, a tool is something which just stands out as being completely other. It's like, if you will, if you wish, really the sign of otherness. A tool or, or a domestic animal or something like that is really the sign of otherness. So is it not then when these were sacrificed that those tribes were trying to destroy the symbol of what was really otherness to get back to some sense of, of oneness? So just the symbol of otherness, destroying it to get back to oneness. So we'll explore that a bit further. I remember when I was in Switzerland studying with a, a Tibetan Lama, after sometimes we needed to make a fire puja. And then we bought so many grain and all that mustard seed and barley and, and I mean it was very costly and it was just burned, burned, you know. And butter and so on. And I was amazed. I said, Well, you know, the Tibetan refugees are not so rich, and there we are, just burning, burning all this food, and that could be useful for so many people. But obviously, if there is nothing which is given which is useful, then there is no sacrificing. 
So that was a good experience to see exactly how that it has to cost something. If it does not cost something, then it's not a sacrifice. So this way of dealing with the world that we have been developing so much, seeing finally most of the things as tool, which means really out of their own beingness, you know, like I was speaking about a tool, then uh, we can see nowadays even the earth is seen as a tool, you know, it's seen as a mean, you know, we just consider the earth or the atmosphere or the rainforest or whatsoever for what it is useful. Okay, it's useful to bring some oxygen or whatsoever, then it's useful or we can destroy it or not, but never as something that is, that which stands in its own being like we do. So the sense of separation and alienation is very strong, and more we'll see the earth as something which can be used for, the sea as being used for, then the sense of separation and not being from this earth is, bringing, is stronger and stronger. And if we sometimes have read, you know, some kind of song or even um, story from the Red Indian, and to see how much they felt in connection with the earth in which they were living, never the sense that we can use that and is is uh, done for this purpose. Is a more a sense of participation with that, you know, of oneness, not in the sense of confusion, but of deep participation. So now, what we are developing in more and more this sense of only uh, seeing the usefulness and bringing more, a stronger sense of separation. When I am guiding tools sometimes in, in the East, you know, like in Tibet and other countries, and it's interesting to see how the people of my group relate to the driver, for example. So for many, the driver is just a driver, so he is reduced to a function. He's not this man, he may have a name, you know, Nima or, or Tashi, and a wife and children in his life, like everybody, you know, he's a driver. Therefore, it's just a function. He's not a complete being, he's a driver. And that's not so strange, you know. Some people come and they say, I am a doctor, you know, so and so. So he's a function. He's not such a man, he's a doctor. Oh, I'm a teacher, I'm a musician. He's a function. Why is a beingness there? So, developing a culture where our function is really uh, set up in front, you know, and we may be proud of our function at the cost of our being. Again, sense of separateness, separation. So to come back to this aspect of the first uh, sacrifice, you know, when those youths were cooked and, and eaten, so that really looked very strange, but it also shows this, this sense of bringing insight. Bringing insight again to uh, come back to oneness, and in the Christian tradition, you know that what is done in the mass is eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood. So also in the sense of getting back to oneness, trying to find deeper meaning than the separation that is done in a useful life. So now what uh, does it mean, the sacrifice in Buddhist tradition? So do we have such a thing? Well, in the Tibetan tradition, which is very rich, I will describe uh, two uh, rites of sacrifice, uh, thing, 
which are quite uh, clear. So the first one is uh, the one which is uh, enacted in the Lama dance. I don't know if some of you have seen some Lama dance. It's quite complex ritual. So we start first very early morning, the monks gather in the temple, and first they will recite some prayers and see themselves on the form of those god and goddess and deities which are going to, to appear during the rituals. Then some of the dancers will come and will pacify the ground on which the dance is going to happen. Pacify means make offering to the ground owner, asking them to go for their picnic somewhere else, that the ground may be used by the dancer for the main ritual. And it's done really with some small uh, cake which are made out of barley, and they put some uh, butter, some uh, small uh, wing, and, and they uh, light it, and they just bring that outside. Really some food brought outside, and then they will come and start to dance again. So first meditating on voidness, and then slowly they will build up the mandala, meaning all the palace which is there, so the different doors and all the complexity of that. They will be dancing, but not dancing and uh, like architect, you know, measuring the, the side and, and the door, you know, the dance is not easy to recognize and say, oh, now they are doing this part and now that's the door. It will be very difficult for anyone to recognize the dance, what it stands for. Only maybe the monk who are, are reading the text can just know that now we are just in building up the mandalas. And then after that, protector come at the door. Again, dancers come and they will just by symbolic gesture set up the protectors and then the main deity will come. Again, dancing and their way of dancing may sometimes, you know, they may uh, make gesture signifying, for example, the different, um, you know, like uh, um, head which is on, on their own mask and so on. So, very complex. After that, they will withdraw and then come some other dancer and they are dressed like skeleton. Yeah, very strange mask with a kind of rainbow, and they bring to the center of the place some effigy, which is made out of barley and uh, um, usually uh, painted in black, and inside is like a human uh, uh, man, you know, very small like that, and sometimes they put some string inside and some jam inside, you know, and they put some black uh, uh, powder on the top of that, usually in a in a triangle box, and they put that in the middle of the dancing ground, and they withdraw. Then the main dancer will come with beautiful mask, a beautiful brocade. Usually, very slowly they dance in a very special way. They turn around that effigy for some time, and then slowly they will go near and near, and sometimes withdraw like if they were afraid, and then go near, and then withdraw, and then the main dancer will come and kill this effigy uh, with a sword and with uh, arrow, usually use different type of, of weapon to kill this effigy. So when that effigy is uh, killed, then you will transform that, with all the monks and reciting prayers, transform that in Amrita, which means the, the, the elixir of immortality. They transform that, and then it is offered. First they threw some in the crowd of the people, and when the people, they are aware, they try to get hold of some piece. And when they don't exactly know what's happening, they avoid it because they don't know what's happening. But actually, it has been transformed, so it's blessed. 
So they offer that to Buddha, Bodhisattvas, and all the Buddhist congregation, and to the people, and they will take the remains and bring it to the river, and throw it into the river. Then they will do in the temple, they will make some more prayers, and then um, uh, get undressed and conclu- conclude the ritual. So very clear, uh, a sacrifice. You know? We could imagine there, it has changed, we don't have a real being there, but you know, it's not very far from a uh, very, very ancient um, type of sacrifice. Ramadan's very colorful and very impressive. Second type of um, sacrifice, it's even maybe more dramatic. I wanted to make something light tonight, I hope it's light enough for the colorfulness, but it's a bit dramatic also. So, this ritual is the ritual of Chu, which is, which means cutting. And this, in this sacrifice, one would sacrifice oneself. So in the ritual is described like that. Um, first, one would throw one's consciousness out of one's body, and at this time one's body will just collapse. Well, imagine one's body collapsing. And then, one's skull will become very, very, very big, as, as big as the universe. And our flesh and bones will be inside the skull. And will appear in the form of a, a goddess uh, holding a ball, you know, usually it's like a, a skull cup, and um, may, maybe with a spoon. And then, reciting prayers, our flesh and blood will be completely transformed into elixir of immortality. And that will be offered, offered first to all the pure beings, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and, and so on, then to the ordinary beings, then to all the beings uh, who are need, you know, needy, some people who are crippled, and so that will all solve all their problems. So it will be offered to all of them, and finally it will be offered to all the people with whom we have something to settle. You know. Some people, maybe from all time, we have to settle some kind of debts. So to repair that, then we'll offer our own body transform. So when one can do that, offering a reciting, and there's a beautiful way of singing, usually it's a, with a big double drum. Uh, one can see the monks sometimes, they use this, and there's a special way of, of uh, singing, and they have a trumpet, you know, and they, they blow that to call all the spirits to come and, you know, come and eat, you know, come and eat. And usually it's done in the middle of the night, there should be no light, no incense, not to frighten those spirits, so they can come and really take part in this big banquet, you know. I have seen that in, uh, in the Himalaya sometimes, just hearing the, the double drum, you know, and I would go near and recognize this type of ritual. So, in a sense, beautiful ritual where one will offer oneself for the sake of all beings. So that's two types of sacrifice that we can see in the Buddhist tradition. So what, what do they mean then, of course? In the first one, in the Lama dance, so it's very clear that the effigy which is put in the middle uh, represents the um, ego grasping, ego clinging, the belief in the self, and that what will be destroyed, and the weapon which will be used are all the weapons of wisdom. That would be like concentration and insight and uh, 
and, and so on. So this ritual, in a, in a sense, if we see what was happening in the tribes, would offer or offer something which uh, was really offered outside, hoping to restore a sense of oneness. There, in the Tibetan ritual, it seems coming much later, one had sense that what was opposed to oneness was not otherness, but was a sense of self. So the sense of self there will be offered that some deeper truth may arise. So we may think that a kind of development and a deeper and deeper meaning found out in the sacrifice. There, the self, what we cling, in a sense, we cling to our otherness, not because of uh, their external world, but because of clinging to some sense of separateness. And that is what is offered in the Lama dance. Then, of course, in the rite of Chu, of cutting, one can see that it is the attachment to oneself, to one's body, to one's form, which is offered there. Very, very efficient uh, ritual. I remember when, when we were in Switzerland studying logic with Stephen and there were some other monks and one very old Lama came and started to teach this ritual and the teacher there was very anxious because he was very afraid because he saw that when that was taught in Tibet usually the monk will stop their study and all go and practice that so he said you know it's very good practice very efficient but don't stop your study go on with your study so well I guess people went on with their studies so that was something that was practiced in, in uh, Tibet. People will go from one cemetery to another one and just do this practice. I will just tell you a short account that was told by me by a Lama living in, in France. So he told me about his uncle, so I think it may be uh, something at least that was quite lively in him. He said that his uncle was a, a good practitioner of church. So in his village he was known for his power and he had developed to such a uh, amount that he could read the mind of other people. He had got deep power. So when there was some kind of robbery in, in the country, they would come to him and ask him, you know, who did that and uh, where, where did they hide all that, what they robbed, you know. So he would not tell it because it's not proper to use one's spiritual power, you know, to betray some... Um, Robber, but then they will offer him some alcohol so he will drink, and finally, then he will start to tell, Well, you know, if you go in this house and you go in the next door, there you will see there is a kind of big pot there, a big jar, and we go underneath and you'll find what you're looking for. Well, they were, and they were finding it. So, of course, uh, he had not only friends there, then yeah, some uh, uh, robber thought they cannot work peacefully with this man, you know, there's no, no way. Then they decided, well, they came and, of course, they were not known, uh, they had not uh, disclosed themselves to this uh, man, and they said, well, we really like you to uh, perform this ritual for us, so um, can you come to the cemetery which is above the, the, the village there, usually always uh, outside the, the village and town. There was a forest around there, and please come in, in the evening and do the ritual. So he agreed and usually he received some offering for that. So he went in the evening there, in the darkest of the night, and started to make his ritual. And 
the brigand there, or the, the bandit, they had uh, dressed themselves like skeletons, you know, painted there with black clothes and, you know, like bones in white, and, you know, and they thought in the middle of his ritual we are going to jump on him and he's going to be so afraid that we'll push him in the cliff and we'll get rid of him. So there he was reciting his ritual very peacefully and certainly very concentrated and then the brigand suddenly came out of the wood and ran to him and he just went on and suddenly all those people were just completely petrified. They stuck, you know, like uh, dead wood and they could not move anymore. And he went on completing his ritual. Then he just packed everything and went down and just before entering the village he just untied some uh, rope that he, had be, uh, that he had tied when those brigands came and then they could move again. And of course they said that better to go and work somewhere else because this man was uh, quite troublesome and better to, to keep away from him. So that uh, how it is, imagine that uh, how it is seen, this kind of story, because this uh, uh, Lama living in France, maybe 60 years old, and it is his uncle, so they see that, like, practice like that, you know, for them is kind of a true life, like we read here in the newspaper a different kind of story, but there are not so many newspapers, but that's the story we're told, you know, oh, you know about my uncle, and then that's what has happened. You know. So, well, now what does it mean in our practice, sacrificing? So, very nice to tell stories, but let's come back to ourselves, you know. So wh what does it mean? So, maybe like in the development of mankind, when mankind became quite skillful in securing food by making more and more complex tools, so that the future could be saved, that food could be uh, gotten, then that was done at the cost of something. That the cost of being in the present, of the cost of, of being more attuned to the surrounding, to the forest, to the river, and so on. So there was some cost there. So humankind maybe had sacrificed something for the sake of <coughs> appeasing maybe the fear of the future and the fear of dying, then something has been there sacrificed. Sense of oneness and also the being just here and now. So for ourselves, what we see in uh, our experiences and the way we are dealing with our experience, are we sacrificing also the proper things? You know, when for the sake of some kind of small pleasure, some kind of comfort, maybe are we not sacrificing a sense of oneness? Are we not, whenever we can choose, are we not choosing always to secure the small, the limited, at the cost of the vast and the deepest? Is it not like if we were in this tribe offering all the tribe for the sake of those two young people, rather than offering the youth for the sake of the tribe. I'll give example. So, if some emotion is arising in me, an emotion which I don't uh, feel like experiencing that, I don't want that. So, in a sense, I may uh, 
cut away to stay in some kind of comfort. I just push that away. And pushing that away, not experiencing it fully, then at this time I just keep an, a split. When there is some um, satisfaction, some pleasure, I just will cling onto that, identifying with that, and therefore just being reduced to some kind of happiness in a very small corner. So sacrificing the wall for the sake of the small. If we read the text, Buddhist text and also Hindu text, there is even other mystic tradition, it is amazing to see that what he said, if you just would stay quiet, not be so much fascinated by all the sense objects and the sense pleasure that can be gotten from. So not so much fascinated by that. So they, they are not really cling to that. Then mind will become more and more peaceful. Then not fascinated by all those thoughts and intelligent thoughts that we may have, all these contents of the mind, not fascinated by that, then also just disregard it, not throwing it away, but just not being interested so much in that. Then some sense of bliss will arise. And this sense of bliss not being attached to that, even deeper bliss would arise. So, which is mean that if we just stop to look for anything, then some deeper bliss would arise within ourselves. All the tradition describes the same. Stop to look for happiness, it will arise in a very deep sense, in such a sense that there is no comparison with any of our worldly experience. Mm? Christian mystics describe that, Hindu and Buddhist tradition also. What is done in the development of concentration is not being so much fascinated by that aspect, by that aspect, and slowly, just resting, then a deeper bliss will arise. So one sees that Maybe in our choice we are sacrificing the wrong thing. The world for the sake of what is fragmented. Well, then in our meditation journey, then we may choose not maybe to hang on to or cling to the sense pleasure. But what we are doing here, there is staying peacefully, we don't jump in food and looking and... So we just very peacefully disregard them for some time, for the time of our retreat. So that's not so interesting. So just at this time choosing to sacrifice those aspects of the sense pleasure. And maybe getting some, maybe getting some peace. Then getting some sense, uh, sacrificing some sense of self-interest, of... Uh, just for myself, me, and so on, and getting a deeper, maybe a deeper sense, if the practice would unfold, maybe a very deep sense of non-duality would arise, a very deep sense of completeness can arise in our practice. Then, will we be ready also to sacrifice that? sacrificing this sense of, of wholeness, of completeness, maybe of peace, sacrificing that, not in order to, but in a sense just sacrificing that 
and letting oneself to go into the unknown. Sacrificing all our certainty, all our intelligence, all our reflection, all that, then just to be open to the unknown. So I think in our practice, there is many times, or if you wish, at every instant of our practice, there is a sacrificing taking place. Now it doesn't mean that we are destroying something. Our sacrificing life is just non-clinging. Nothing else. And non-clinging, all these objects we are clinging to, then they lose their concreteness, and they lose their power of binding us. We don't need to destroy them, and uh, no harm need to be done. So sacrificing is also applying, I think, understanding that in an inner sense, and choosing the right sacrifice. So we may just meditate for a few minutes, and just to quieten the mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.